Well, I'd like to start today by saying thank you, Bridge, for serving at Touch Twice yesterday. Uh, you guys were awesome. Uh, I just get a walk around at Touch Twice and see everybody serving, and it I, makes me so proud to see how God is working in your life. One of the cool things that happened yesterday, um, one of our gals got to share the gospel with two people and led them to Christ, and uh, that was a pretty cool thing to happen at Touch Twice. Uh, with over 60 of you uh, in, involved. Um, I woke up this morning and saw the snow, and I thought, trying to think of something positive, and I realized that there's only one more Sunday that it could snow in April, so we only have one more week. I don't know how your week has been. I know a few of you have had some pretty difficult things happen this past week. And there's been a lot of emotional highs and lows uh, with all the national and world scene. Um, Just let let me remind you of a few of those things that have happened. On Monday, two bombs went off at the Boston Marathon. Um, I found Sue watching national news in the middle of the day on Monday on her day off, and this is what it was all about. Three people were killed. Um, I don't know if there was over 140, 150. I don't know how many people have been injured. Um, On Thursday, two suspects were identified. Um, As you know, one was killed in a gun battle with police. One policeman was killed in that gun battle. Uh, The second suspect was apparently shot, and he was taken into custody on Friday. And one other policeman, uh, one policeman was seriously, excuse me, was seriously injured in the gun battle, and then one was shot previously to the gun battle a few hours earlier by the... um, assumed uh, uh, suspects that were taken into custody. On Wednesday, in a totally unrelated incident, a catastrophe happened in West Texas where a fertilizer plant exploded. You probably saw that in the news. Four square city blocks were decimated, including a school, um, apartment complex, and a number of homes. 14 are dead, over 200 were injured. 11 of those killed were attached to the volunteer fire department, first responders. Joe Birdie of West Texas ran the Boston Marathon on Monday, crossed the finish line 30 seconds ahead of the bomb. His wife was near the finish line, and the person next to her was seriously injured. She walked away. He went back to Texas on Tuesday to work, and he was returning home from Dallas on Wednesday evening to see the blast at the fertilizer plant. Some of you know that on Saturday there was an earthquake in China, um, and 179 people were killed, and 6,700 more were injured. On Friday, a 20-year-old student at UWEC, either jumped or fell from the bridge and is missing today. We watch uh, TV and we see pain and suffering and sorrow. We see devastation and grief. And we feel sad for the people who have lost family members and who've been injured. And when you think about it, some people will be drawn closer to God During these days, some people will be repelled. 
Some people will move further away from God. It has a lot to do about assumptions of reality and what expectations people have. If there is such a thing as a true and living God, what should we expect? And a lot of us, frankly, just want heaven now. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. We want blessed now. And if there is such a thing as God, God should just plain bless us. And yet, uh, that's not exactly what Scripture says. So my question to start with, as you go through a week like this, has God's word changed? Have the promises of God changed? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Can you trust God's word? Absolutely. In fact, knowing God's word helps me understand the difficulties of life. It helps me cope every day with uh, struggles and stress. Jesus said that in this life, I would have um, trouble. The apostle Peter said that we will go through fiery trials. The apostle Paul warned us of suffering. The scripture uh, teaches us that we can grow through difficult times. Jesus said that before he comes back, there would be wars, there would be rumors of wars, there would be earthquakes, there would be famines, and such things would escalate. Yet God promises provision for all that I need. He promises me strength for my circumstances, the possibility of peace that surpasses all understanding instead of worry or fear. He promises contentment in my soul instead of a groping hole in my heart. He promises courage instead of fear. He promises his power instead of my weaknesses. And today, although we're surrounded by a number of uh, difficulties that people are facing, my focus is not going to be on the problems. Um, My focus is going to be on how we respond. Uh, My focus is going to be on the impact of God's word in our lives. So if uh, you have an outline in your program, and we're going to begin with Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 15 today. That is on page 718 or 1036. So we have two different uh, bridge Bibles floating around. So we, if you're using a bridge Bible, those are the page numbers uh, you should look for. Luke chapter 8. The rest of you, open your Bible. And uh, Luke chapter 8, if anybody needs one, our ushers probably have a couple left. So just slip up your hand. Our ushers, do you have a, yeah, they have three left. So help yourselves. The context, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, after this... Jesus traveled from town, one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, this was uh, Jesus' kind of style of ministry. He was an itinerant preacher. He was in uh, northern Israel around the Sea of Galilee. He would go from town to town, and he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Uh, something promised in the Old Testament was coming, and... Uh, The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at near. And guess what? 
to everybody's surprise, he is the king. And even though he says it in so many words, very few people are getting it. He is the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. And he's announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. Who were the 12? Those uh, disciples that he had handpicked. And these are uh, people who appear to be highly committed to Jesus. And we're going to lose one in the end. And his name is Judas. Uh, And also, there were some women who had been cured of evil spirits. So they had had an encounter with Jesus, and uh, they were very appreciative of what he had done in their lives. And there was Mary called Magdalene, whom uh, seven demons had come out. There was Joanna, wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. And these women stuck with Jesus to the end. Um, These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The ministry was financed by women. Um, God used these ladies to financially support uh, Jesus' traveling public ministry to provide food uh, as as they traveled. So this is kind of a picture of the early ministry, and this is the context. The parable uh, comes in verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, while large crowds were gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. Uh, Jesus told a lot of parables. We have about 38 parables recorded of Jesus. And my assumption would be that he told many more parables. So what is a parable? Thank you for asking. Um, One of the best definitions is the old Sunday school answer. Uh, A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Frankly, I just like that. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an everyday happening that's teaching a spiritual reality. It's a concrete thing that people can see and know and touch, and it's something that has something abstract uh, spiritually to communicate. In this case, uh, it's about the kingdom of God, which is a little bit abstract. People were flocking to hear Jesus. And uh, he's extremely popular. Why? Because of the miracles. People love to be impressed and to see things happen and uh, power and uh, awesome things. And Jesus was cool. And so he attracted people. The elements of the story are in verses 5 through 8, and it's pretty simple. Look at verse 5. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil, and it came up, yielded a crop hundred times more than was sown. Now, a sower going out, a farmer going out to sow his seed was just a common occurrence. Uh, October through December was like a normal planting time. And somehow the field got cleared, whether they burned part of it, uh, carried off things, field would have been cleared. And then a sower with a bag on his shoulder would go around and begin to sow the seed, usually Wheat, probably wheat in this case. And uh, so there are uh, three main elements of the story. The farmer, 
And the seed, which is probably wheat, but it doesn't really make any difference. And then we have the soil. And there are four types of soil. And uh, the first kind of soil is uh, sown along the path. Uh, It's sown on the roadside, like a dirt road. Some of you guys maybe have never even seen a dirt road. Uh, Where I grew up, there were dirt roads in the country. And the goal was you drive over, and they get hard, and then the sun comes down, and they get like concrete. And then the rain comes and messes them all up, and you've got to start over again. And they had road graders back in those days to, to make them nice and flat. But some of the seed was sown on the uh, roadside along the path, and that was just kind of natural. Nobody ex- really expected it to grow there, but it was just as it was spread in the field as much as possible, um, it um, would be on the roadside. And uh, it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up because it was easy pickings. You know, there's the seed. The birds just come down and take it. Now, after the seed was sown, the farmer would come back with some kind of rake to sort of scratch the soil so that the seed could kind of get covered up. And you didn't really get the seed covered up on the, along the path on the roadside where the soil was hard. The birds just came. Then the second kind of soil was on the rocks. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. When, when I was in seminary, we lived in uh, Garland, Texas, which is just north of Dallas. And um, people down there work really, some people work really hard at taking care of the, their yards, and then some people just let them go and, and kind of be natural. And, you know, having come from Iowa... We were used to like real green grass. And when we went to Texas, everything was dead and you had to water it. Then I found out there were two kinds of grass that we don't really have in Iowa. One is Bermuda grass and one is St. Augustine grass. And they're way different than Kentucky bluegrass. And uh, so I decided, you know, I wanted to be a good steward with my lawn. And I decided to to rake it all up and then to um, till it, which is really hard work. It's like roadside soil, and uh, then plant Bermuda grass because I wanted a really nice lawn. I wanted to be a good steward. And, uh, and then I watered it, and then it started to come up. And right outside of my study, right out the study window, there's a little patch that always seemed to be uh, just barren. So I was really excited when the grass grew over that patch, and I thought, I have conquered this. And I watered it, and I waited, and I took care of it. And pretty soon, that all of that grass disappeared, and it was back to being barren. And I was highly disappointed not to be defeated. I did it again, and I replanted the grass right there, and I watered it, and sure enough, it came up again. And then it just disappeared. And I got kind of tired of this, and finally, I decided to check out the soil a little bit, and I started to dig, and I came on something hard. And so I dug down, and uh, boy, there's a piece of limestone down there. Limestone is really common. And so I kept digging, and it ends up being about a three or four foot piece of limestone. It's probably three or four inches thick, and it's just flat, just sitting there, a little bit of dirt on it. And so whenever, it, uh, whenever you watered it, once in a while it rained, the water would go right down through there, and then it would go into that limestone. And anything on top would just 
disappear. It would wither up. And I learned about this. And that's exactly what happens in Israel. Limestone under the soil takes up uh, moisture and not much will grow on top of limestone that's close to the surface. The third kind of soil is the soil with thorns. And um, other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. So the farmer originally would, you know, sort of clean up the top of the, of the field he was working with and look good on top, but he couldn't tell what was underneath. He couldn't tell if there were roots of uh, kind of thorny or weeds, or he couldn't tell if there were seeds that were under the, under the surface. And so after he plants his wheat and he waits for the rain to come, and then it comes up, and guess what? There, there's his wheat, but there's other stuff there that he didn't want. And they grow up together, and uh, the thorns begin to overtake his wheat. And finally, the, the last one is soil that is good. And still other seed fell on the good soil, came up with and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Now, that's really a good crop, because back in the first century in ancient Israel, if they could get eight to ten times of produce from one seed sown was considered uh, success. And so a hundred times would be awesome. Now the question is, you know, think of there, who's listening. There's a large group of people. There are the disciples, the 12, and, and the women that are with him who are highly committed to Jesus. And uh, disciples come up with a question in verse 9. His disciples ask him, what this parable meant. And, you know, it's good to ask, what does it mean? We're, uh, we're on to the question, verses 9 and 10. And um, what does this mean? And it's a good, quest, good thing that disciples ask questions because that's how you learn. Um, sometimes people are afraid to ask questions when they don't understand the Bible. Um, here, the disciples were honest and probably clueless as well. I would have been clueless too. Um, so Jesus begins to answer what the parable meant. And first, he explains why he's speaking in parables. Uh, this is, became his sort of modus operandi to speak in parables. Uh, the reason is given, uh, verse 10, he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Jesus uses parables to teach uh, spiritual reality. It is a teaching device that he uses. Um, when he would teach in parables, if people were kind of really interested, they were curious. They would want to know more. It would just drive them crazy not to know. But other people would just say, I don't get it, and walk away. And uh, for Jesus' disciples, he really wanted to stir up their curiosity because they knew that what he was saying was really important, and they knew there was something behind it. They just hadn't gotten it yet. Jesus quotes um, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. We're going to look at Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 10, and uh, Isaiah's writing in the 8th century, way before Jesus, you know, so around 800 years before Jesus. And Isaiah's a prophet. And he says, 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And, and I said, Here I am. Send me. And that's Isaiah. He says, Lord, you want somebody to go? I'll do it. Verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people. And you can just sense there, this people. This, God isn't happy with his group. And who is this group? This is Israel, the people of God. God's people who have God's word, who have an understanding of, of uh, who he is and what he has done in the past and what he said about the future and what he hopes for his people. Go tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. So let's say back there. And the idea is that people will actually hear and won't get it, and they're actually going to see and they won't put it together. Think about this. In Jesus' day, they saw Jesus. They heard him teach. Some of those people were in his presence, and they could do it day after day. Some of those people saw him do miracles and didn't get it. And some people did. Next slide. And then God says through Isaiah, eight centuries before Christ, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and, cl- and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And there's a sense God is judging his people. And he said, if you don't pay attention, I'm going to let you slide uh, I'm going to let, if you want to have callous ears to the word of God, I'm going to let them get calloused, spiritually speaking, so that you don't hear. You want it your way, you got it. Because God is looking for people who respond to his word and respond to his leading and, and, and respond to his instructions. So God said, and it gets applied to the first century in the, in the, in the time of Jesus. God said, I'm going to send my Messiah. Uh, we read about it in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and all the Christmas passages to speak of Jesus and his coming and that he's the son of David and he's going to reign on that throne forever. He's coming and he came. And that's what Luke's recording. Jesus is teaching the good news about the kingdom of God and there are people there who don't really care. They're just there for ha- having a good time. And God says, okay, um, they don't want to hear, let them not hear. The interpretation comes in verses uh, 11 through 15. And uh, we, we start with the seed. The seed is the word of God. And specifically, that refers to the good news of the kingdom of God. It applies to all of God's word. The sower sows and the seed is the word of God. And um, the question is, is who is the sower? And the answer is, in this case, it's Jesus. And he's going about proclaiming the word of God. He's the farmer in the parable, and he is proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Matthew 13 uh, records this parable slightly different, tells us a little bit more, and makes that application to sons of the kingdom. So not only will Jesus be the one who's sowing, but those who are sons of the kingdom. And we carry it right up today to the church. Those who are proclaiming the word of God, those who are proclaiming the gospel of God today are sowing seed, sowing the word of God. 
And the soil represents the crowds of people that follow him. He's teaching, and all these people are flocking around him. And he's, he's got a teaching point for his disciples. Four types of soil. He starts with the, his interpretation in verse 12, the soil on the path. Those along the path are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they not, may not believe and be saved. Uh, so this represents the heart of a person who is a bit indifferent or even calloused. Uh, one of those groups in Jesus' audience were the Pharisees. And they had no desire to pay attention to Jesus. They were just looking for ways to uh, trip him up, show people that he was a false teacher. Uh, There were some people who were just totally spiritually indifferent to Jesus. And just like in uh, the, the farmer, the birds... The seed is snatched up. As the birds came and ate the seed, the the, the the seed, the word of God, is snatched up by the devil. And so what we're saying here is there's actual spiritual warfare when the word of God is proclaimed. And the word, the whole concept, can be removed from somebody's mind as the enemy distracts, distorts, gets people to move in a different direction. What are we saying? We're saying it's possible that spiritual warfare has a profound effect on people when they hear the word of God. Jesus says this explicitly. And he says, in fact, it keeps people from believing and it keeps people from being saved. It keeps people from responding in faith. We go on to the soil on the rock, verse 13. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy, and then they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. So this describes an emotional response to the word of God. It describes an emotional response to Jesus Christ. They receive the word with joy. They believe for a while. They do not get grounded in their faith. And they have nothing to fall back on, and so they fall away. They haven't gained something that helps them go further. And when the storms of life come, just like the things that have happened in this past week, they lose their grips on their faith. And let me just make an aside comment here. Jesus is not teaching the doctrine of salvation in this passage. Uh, Sometimes we want to look too far into this Is this person saved or is this person not saved? Is this person saved or is this person not? We know the first one isn't. What about these other three? Well, Jesus doesn't make that clear for us. And I think he does it intentionally. But he is showing us how people respond. Um, So, could this person not be saved? Possible. Could this person be saved? Maybe. It's just showing how people respond. He's not trying to say, oh, you're this one or this one, um, you're saved or you're not saved. If you're this one, you're saved and you're okay. He's not saying that because that's not his goal is to get uh, anyone to be uh, soil on the rock. Um, Verse 14, the soil with thorns. The seed fell among the thorns that stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. 
And this sounds a little bit more like this person could be saved, but they just don't grow up. This kind of heart uh, apparently receives the word of God by faith. However, their growth is, growth is majorly stifled. Um, the everyday worries, they don't seem to be able to trust God with their daily circumstances. Uh, materialism, wanting the next gadget and pursuing uh, the, nice, the good life, the nicer place, um, the next upgrade, whether it's a home or a car or more stuff or technology, they uh, pursue pleasures. Maybe it's addiction that comes first. Um, this person's heart, they, they, they go along their way. And the, all these other things, the worries, riches, and pleasures, take the focus, the energy of their life, and they don't grow. They don't mature. And then we come to verse, uh, and, you know, these are probably just baby Christians. Year after year after year. Maybe they go to church nearly every week. But they're not growing. They're not engaging with the word. They're not taking the word into their life. They're not being changed by it. Maybe a little religious. But they're kind of stuck. Okay, verse 15. Last verse. The soil that is good. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. I, I like that word per, persevering because it suggests that it's just not simple and it's just not, okay, t- today we do this and tomorrow everything's great. But it's, it takes time to grow. When something is planted, it takes time. And I don't think Jesus is just looking at a few months. I think he's looking at more like a lifetime. And they produce a crop. This is Jesus' desired target. He's looking for a noble, faithful, uh, honest, trusting hearts that uh, not only believe, but they, they follow. Uh, when Jesus leads and gives instructions, they follow. Um, the result is their faithfulness produces an abundant crop. Uh, obedience, they're uh, yielding spiritual growth, yielding answered prayer, uh, yielding leading people to faith in Christ, yielding to generosity, yielding to advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, that's the passage. Let me make some observations. And I'm just going to start by saying, remember, Jesus is not really trying to teach salvation. He's trying to teach how people respond to what he says. First one is, uh, you will respond to God's word according to the condition of your heart. Think about this. You're going to walk out of here today. You will respond to God's word according to the condition of your heart. If you are far from God, the enemy may come, and anything you thought about here might be gone this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Um, If you're caught up with the problems of life, uh, you may not understand or hear God's word. If you are focusing on the good life, money and stuff, um, and... um, the pleasures of life, you will have a divided heart. That's exactly what Jesus said. You're going to be pulled in two different directions. Um, If 
you uh, intentionally pursue God in his word, expect God to do great things in and through your life. If you intentionally pursue God and his word. Second observation, you are responsible for the condition of your heart. You. That's your responsibility. Um, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. You and I have a responsibility for soul care, to guard our hearts, to be intentional, to think about what we do, what we think, or how we spend our, our, our time. We have a responsibility. Um, I sometimes like to call it self-leadership. If, if uh, I don't lead me, and I don't mean apart from the Lordship of Christ or apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, but if I'm not responsible for my life, who is? And so I have to make choices and priorities about my day. Do I, do I have time for God? Do I, do I have time for prayer? Do I have time for His Word? Do I have time for relationships in my week? Uh, do I have time to be in a growth group? Do I have time to, to uh, worship at church? Those are choices I make. How I spend my leisure time is a choice how I make. I can intentionally s- schedule important things into my life. Matthew 6.29 is another passage that helps us here. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is uh, like the thorny soil. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where the thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's talking about setting aside resources and giving them back to God, being generous. Store up your, for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, here's what Jesus said, there will your heart be also. It's like an intentional choice. You can't do both. You have to make a choice. And if you're, if you're trying to straddle the fence and sort of like be a good Christian and pursue the good life at the same time, you're going to be stuck. You're going to be like the thorny, sto- the thorny soil. Matthew six thirty three and 34. But seek first his kingdom. So God's, uh, Jesus suggests a priority system. His kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will give to you as well. All the things that we need in life. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Put God's kingdom first. And it can ha- help you with worry. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so putting God's kingdom and his stuff before my kingdom. Do you have a kingdom? I do. I, I got stuff that's I think is important to me. And yet, priorities, who's first? And do, does my little personal kingdom fit under the lordship of Christ? So my resources belong to him, and he can use them whenever he wants, and however he wants. And I can trust him to handle the troubles of my day because each day has enough trouble. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Above all else, guard your heart. What do you think about? If you're sitting around thinking negative, thinking about how bad things are and how bad you are, You're probably not focusing on truth. And I have a choice. I'm not trying to tell you that life is easy, but I do have a choice about what I fill my mind with. 
And if I focus here, I'm taking a lot of energy away from the negative in my life. Philippians 4.11. For I have learned to be content. This is one of the most important things I think we can learn about life. For me, it's been one of the most important things. Can I be satisfied in here no matter what the circumstances are around me? Am I okay with God right here? At the center of any storm, can I be okay with God? That's what Paul says. He's learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. And if you know Paul's life, he had some rough stuff. Just because he was a great Christian doesn't mean his life wasn't loaded with turmoil and struggles. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I bet you do too. And I know what it is to have plenty. I bet you do too. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's what I need. I need to be able to rely on Christ's strength for all things. And uh, when I do, my heart can be in a good place. If I rely on my own strength, my heart's not going to be real healthy. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 20. James says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So anger can be one of those things, one of those things that's an obstacle to a healthy heart. Anger is going to affect how you hear God's word or whether reading God's word makes sense to you. So like if you're really angry at somebody, that's going to make, make your spiritual life difficult. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, I know there's good reasons to get anger and angry, and there's righteous anger, and somebody sins against you, you can have righteous anger, but you can't stay there. You have to trust that God says revenge is his, and I can't get payback. I'm going to have to trust him with handling justice. Justice isn't my role. And then I have to decide at some point, can I forgive? Because Jesus said I needed to forgive. It doesn't, it doesn't let that person off the hook because they're still on God's hook. But I have, I, have, I, I have to make sure that spiritually I'm okay with God, get rid of all moral filth. And God says that if I've sinned, he's made a way for me, a provision that if, if I will confess my sins to him, he is uh, faithful and he will cleanse me and purify me of all unrighteousness. And I can, be, I can get a do-over. I can start fresh and clean so that I'm able to receive the word of God. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the, to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And so it's, you can hear God's word, you can read God's word, you can just be passive, neutral, maybe, maybe not, or you can engage with it. God said I should do this, so I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to push in that direction. I'm going to ask him to help me do what he wants me to do. Thirdly, your heart condition can change. That's good news and bad news. Your heart condition can change. The good news is, if you're stuck right now, you can move away from it, move closer toward Christ, and be in a much spiritually healthier situation. That's good news. The bad news is, if you slide, things are going to get worse. That's the bad news, because your heart condition can change. Hebrews 2.1 is a good reminder We must pay the most careful attention, um, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. I think that's such a great image for the Christian life. It's a danger. It's a warning of 
drifting. And the writer says, we've we got to pay more careful attention. Hey, folks, wake up here. Pay more, more attention. Remember, we were saved by grace through faith. Remember, we were supposed to follow Jesus. And sometimes we just drift. Life is hard. Go into neutral. And if you're neutral, you're not going forward. And it's just a reminder. We've got to pay more careful attention so that we do not drift. Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, the writer of Hebrews, anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So here the writer of Hebrews just is referring to God's word, and here he refers to it as milk and uh, liking it to that's what an infant, that's the kind of uh, food that an infant needs to grow, and it's very important for a baby Christian to start on simple basic stuff and just begin to take it all in and grow. That's just normal and healthy, but you can't stay there for five years or 10 years or 20 years. You you need to be able to handle more. You you need to be able to learn about more difficult issues in Scripture. And verse 14 says, but solid food, referring to more. uh, The Scripture has a lot of difficult things, but more understanding. Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish from good and evil. The more you're acquainted with God's word, the more you understand about how, who God is and how he operates and how to cope with a week like this past week, um, the more you're able to discern good and evil. Not everything is black and white. Some people just, it's great if it's black and white, but a lot of things are gray. And you have to walk into them every day and make decisions about life. And the more you know the easier it is for you to make a wise choice. And the easier it is for a parent to help their children in making wise choices. And uh, one more here, 1 Timothy 4, 7. I I love this. Paul says, train yourself to be godly. It's really simple. Paul tells Timothy, train yourself. And there that responsibility is pushed back to the individual. Church has a responsibility. We need to teach We need to be concerned. We need to help each other. And then there's this part where each of us, I have a responsibility to train myself back to self-leadership. I have a responsibility to take care of my spiritual life. Who's going to read the word of God for me if I don't? Well, I could ask Sue to. She's done that before. She could help me, but I still have to listen and take in the word of God. Um, Who's going to pray if my prayer life if I don't? Who's going to learn more about God's word if I don't study or I don't listen to other teachers? And so I have this responsibility to train myself. And you have that responsibility too for your own spiritual life. Uh, number four, observation. People will respond to the message of God, the gospel differently. This is the obvious application Jesus was showing his disciples that as they present the word of God, as they present the good news of the kingdom, people are going to respond differently. Um, the, the problem is not the good news. And the problem is not necessarily the, the farmer or the sower of the seed. The issue is the type of heart that receives the word. People will respond to the message of the gospel differently. And so just be reminded of this. There are four types of heart that Jesus um, spoke about. And our job is to be faithful to sow the seed and leave the results up to God. 
Uh, not everyone has the same interest level. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, boy, if anybody was just logical, they would see who Jesus is and they would solve all the problems. Well, it's more complicated than that. Jesus tells us that, that uh, there, there are different types and people um, don't have the same interest level. Okay, last one here, number five. Satan blinds unbelievers to the message of the gospel. And we saw this. It's just like the roadside soil. The birds came and took the seed, and Satan came and took uh, the word from a person's mind or heart. Satan blinds unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even our, if our gospel is veiled, sometimes it's covered up. We think it's clear, and yet people can't get it. I know for sure because I didn't get it the first 25 years of my life, and I know a lot of people tried to help me. I just didn't get it. And by the way, I was definitely the roadside soil. I was hard toward the gospel. I was callous toward the gospel. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's a reference to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's true. There's a spiritual blindness for people who have not yet placed their faith in Christ so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And by the way, you just need to know that and be reminded of it. Um, And so this is spiritual warfare, and spiritual, spiritual warfare requires spiritual warfare tactics. One of those weapons is prayer. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 6, 8, that we can pray, and we are to pray. And if, uh, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, even if our... Go- 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When it comes to the gospel... People are blinded to the truth, and that's why God has engaged us to pray for people who don't know Jesus yet because they don't have the ability to see. God doesn't need us. He could do it without us, but he's asked us and chosen us to pray for the people in our lives so that the veil will come down and they can see the truth and see who Jesus is and understand. And that's a, that's a, uh, a spiritual ministry uh, it's, it's spiritual understanding and it, to enable a spiritual response. So, what about your heart today? When it comes to the Word of God, how would you describe yourself? Um, are you growing day by day and seeing God at work in you and around you? Are you, are you stuck? Um, Is your first love your life and your happiness? Is your first love Jesus, his kingdom, and his righteousness? Your spiritual health is your responsibility. And Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear. He wasn't talking about the sounds. He was talking about hearing with understanding and then doing something about it. Let's stand and pray.
Father, I thank you uh, for Jesus' parable that talks about our hearts. And you've shown us that there are different kinds of responses to your word. And I pray, God, that you'll tear down any strongholds that are against any people in this room, or that are against any minds in this room, so that they cannot understand. Please, God, tear those down. Remove the ability of the evil one to take away your word. And I pray, God, that you will show each of us steps that we should take, whether we need to be more intentional about spending time with you, whether we need to be focused on your word, whether there's some things that we need to set aside that are distractions that are keeping us from putting you first. Lord, may our hearts be like good soil so that we can be effective and productive for you and honor you with our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.